Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month. On this episode, I sat down with Leslie Stahl at her office at 60 Minutes at CBS, where she's been for over 40 years. It was a real pleasure to sit down with someone who has been a pioneer in television. And she was also the host of Face the Nation, which is a really fun show. I'm kidding, it's a very wonky show, but it's a, certainly a very important one. She was there for eight years as the host of Face the Nation. Um, and since then, she's been at 60 Minutes. We got to speak about what it's like to have a really cushy job in journalism where you actually get to explore issues, stay on the topic for as long as you need. We spoke about her mentor and also her own entrepreneurial adventures, including starting Wow Oh Wow with a bunch of other very senior career women who are incredibly successful in their own right as well. It was such a joy to spend a day or at least spend an hour with someone who has had such an incredible career and also the opportunity to grow and thrive and become even better at what they do. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ms. Leslie Stahl. Thank you so much for being on Employee of the Month. I'm very excited. This is your first podcast. Not of my life, but it's my first big award of this kind. Okay, good. And I'm honored. You're, you're, it's, it's you, Rachel Maddow, Gloria Steinem. Wow, I'm in great company. I love both those women. They're I've fabulous. interviewed them both. Is that right? Yep. They're phenomenal. I interviewed them both for my wowohwow.com website. So let's talk about that a little bit. This is a company that you run with um, other women, including Liz Smith, I know. Liz Smith and Joni Evans and Cynthia McFadden of ABC News, Sheila Nevins of HBO. Who's so fabulous, yeah. Candace Bergen, Lily Tomlin. Tell, tell me a little bit about your company, because I feel like it started too early. It was like almost a little before its time being no, this No, actually, we started, we started off... Uh, too late, sorry. I don't think we started too late. I think we... <laughs> It was about, when was it, 07 or 08. Um, and we were very popular. It was really going strong. And then the recession hit. What is it? And tell people what it does. Well, we were um, a content site uh, for women. We said women over 40. Mm -hmm. We had conversations with each other. We wrote essays on our own. Uh, and the great thing was uh, that as with any group of women who sit around and talk, there was no subject that was uh, considered off our channel. We talked about everything, finances, bank accounts, investing. We talked about the news of the day. We talked about Hollywood. We talked about gossip with Liz Smith, fashion, medicine. How um, honest did you guys get about finances? Because I feel like that's a subject that was never taught to me and is a huge part of this show. We actually, we were, we were sponsored from time to time by Wells Fargo Bank. Uh, so we talked a lot about how ignorant women are about finances yes, case in point and myself. how afraid we are of money or, or running our money, looking into it. So we talked about it in that respect and we were quite honest. Obviously I'm telling you that I'm, I don't know enough about my own money. And even how did you learn how to negotiate you, your salary and things like that? How did you know how to go in and say I want X? when you don't even know what the other person, you know, your contemporaries are making. Well, what most of us in my business do is hire agents that do that for us. I've never negotiated my own contract. So, so and you feel comfortable having the agent do it for you? You don't feel like you well, need to Well, I now have that. a lawyer do it for me, but I feel far more comfortable putting it in their hands than doing it myself. Because I, I think it's... I also think that a lot has been written and talked about 
um, how women don't like to ask for more. Yes. And I suspect I would have been one of those women. So it was good to hire someone to do it for me. And the other tricky part, though, I think is as a woman, when you do ask for more, you run the risk of being seen as aggressive. Well, um, we're afraid of that. I'm yeah. not sure it's as true as we fear. Meaning that, that, that take the risk. And well, if you don't do. get that job, that's right, men do. Men almost always do. Women almost never do. So. Have you felt at times that being a woman has worked to your advantage? Sure. I was hired right after affirmative action began to pass. They hired me because I was a woman, and I always felt they didn't want me to fail. They didn't hire me, so I would fall on my face. So I feel that, that uh, yeah, I, I got breaks because I was a woman. More breaks than uh, I had setbacks because I was a woman. My case, anyway. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be true for all women. No. But at least it was true for me. It, there was a dramatic shift. When I left my PhD to do comedy, when I started, it was so obnoxious and so sexist. And in the last three years, I feel like the world is my oyster. And it's because so many women like yourself um, you know, have succeeded. I, I, something shifted, in, in, at least in comedy, well, where you it know suddenly it was okay to be funny and smart. I know what it is. It's the tipping point, and I've been waiting for it for 40 years. <laughs> well, thank you for breaking it. <laughs> I'm not sure I brought it, but what I've been saying all this time, from the minute affirmative action passed to now, how come we have all these women going to college, more women than men, graduate yes. school? Um, Law school, medical all school. All of them, yes. and more women on television. Yes. You used to say, well, there are no role models, but there are women all over television. Tons. How come we're, we're, we still have a glass ceiling? How come we're still behind the eight ball? The tipping point is only now starting 40 years later. Took I, a long time. I even saw it went with, you know, I mean, it was such a, a stark and, and almost um, overly contrived thing with uh, Hillary Clinton and Obama. Well, a black man or a white woman, but I do think that the, it, it is now going to be um, a time for women who are upperly mobile, and I think that the trick is then to also help people who are not upwardly mobile get up there. But I think that, that the sort of, it's no longer the year of the women, I would say it's the century of the <laughs> women now. Starting. You know, I was just talking at lunch today with a woman about what's happened in the state of New Hampshire, mm -hmm. where they seem now to only want women in the, as their representatives in Congress and as governors. I mean, they keep voting women over and over. Uh, I think that shift this conversation is not biased. I happen to have a, um, um, my brother's mother-in-law is a state representative in New Hampshire. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's one state, but it's a beginning. Absolutely. I mean, it's so exciting to see it. And also, that's a very interesting state to see that in because it's, you know, also um, politically all over the map. It is. And it has, it, I gather, I was told at lunch that there's two halves to the state, yes. the conservative half and the liberal totally half. Totally dramatic. And both halves voted for women. Yeah, it's it, it uh, that is I think that part is what's fascinating is that both halves are working together is, is such a huge deal. I did want to ask you um, when you I guess you've been working for forty years, is that correct? Or at over CBS at CBS. So yeah. how how long total has your career been? Well, I I started in journalism at NBC for the nineteen sixty eight presidential campaign. Wow. And uh, they I was a researcher for them. They sent me out across the country to write these handbooks for the correspondents in the primary states. 
so interesting. So I got to be on Bobby Kennedy's campaign train through Nebraska. Was he as, was he as uh, charming and charismatic as his brother? Yes, he was. Uh, being on the train was the most fun. They made it. They made it hilarious. They just made being in their company full energy. Oh my God! It sounds and lots of jokes and and towel snapping kind of jokes. Um, very old school. Well, very fun. Locker room <laughs> fun. I just thought, wow, this is the greatest. Um, I covered Eugene McCarthy in Wisconsin. I covered. I covered with these handbooks as a researcher. And were you um, affiliated? And I with was in California when Bobby Kennedy was shot. Oh wow! Yeah. Where were you when that happened? I was watching television. I wasn't at the site, but I was working for NBC at the time on on the campaigns. So that was my very beginning. It was a wonderful place to start. And then when I got to CBS, the Watergate break-in happened almost immediately after I arrived. And because nobody really thought it was much of a story, right. they sent the new kid out because it wasn't a big deal. So I got to grab onto that story from day one. And they kept dropping it? I, I was listening to you on um, and watching you on Chris Matthews. Well, it kept dying. The story because kept dying. The only people who ever got really new information were Woodward Woodward and Bernstein and they took a lot of time to develop their sources and their information. So it it would just go dark for weeks. But Bob Woodward kept telling you to to push to keep the story yeah, alive. Don't give up the story. Now, was that partly out of self-interest that it would help give more gravitas to the story? Uh, I think he was being my friend at that early stage. Okay. But he uh, he encouraged me to stay with it because he smelled the significance of it from early, early on. It's incredible that you came on when it was so meaningful also. That, you know, as a journalism, you're really oh, making you mean a difference. Oh, the journalism had yeah. Yeah, reached that height. I know my timing has been pretty good. Yeah. I came with affirmative action, <laughs> which was great, and then hit Watergate as my first story. I mean, to have actual, to see your work have change on the country, to have an actual impact on people. Yeah. Well, what Watergate did for me, because it ran for years, was yeah. allow me to develop sources. When young people first start out in journalism, they're often sent to cover I don't know, cover the State House one day, and the next day you'd be covering... Potholes? Well, you'd be covering a medical story, okay. and the next day you'd be covering a finance story, and the next day the sanitation department, so that you never really get to develop a source, hmm. sink your teeth in, stay with the story for any length of time, uh, and really, therefore, learn how to really do any kind of in-depth reporting. So uh, when I say I was lucky, I mean it. You know, I, once, I was once interviewed by a, a group of women who were doing a study at Rice University on success. Hmm. And they told me that one thing they had discovered already was that virtually every man will, uh, no, no, wait, virtually every woman will say that the secret to her success was luck, as I'm telling you. Yes. No man says that. Absolutely, no matter what they do, yeah. no matter <laughs> how women, uninteresting their position is. See, when, when people say, you women, you shouldn't be more like men, well, in some respects, we could learn a few things. Yes. I mean, I think that, that, no, that's right. I mean, I think the trick is to get the best qualities of both. And I think what's been interesting in looking at these huge female leaders, like with Sheryl Sandberg and um, Marissa Meyer, you know, the head of Yahoo. I do. I interviewed her. Well, so she seems fascinating to me. What, what, were, what did you want to talk about with her? 
Oh, well, I, I did a story on Google mm -hmm. really early on. And she was designing the page, and she was fairly high up in the company, had been with the company from almost the beginning, in the garage, I think. She started with them in the garage. Um, so This is pre-massages at, at lunch and breakfast. No, no, they, they were doing pretty well at having their lunches <laughs> they had and massages. breakfast. They had great food in, the, in their dining room even then. Uh, but she, she was basically uh, walking us through the, f the home page for our story. Uh, it, it was a new thing when I did the piece for most people. So we were introducing the public to Google. Yes. What is Google? To a whole culture. And now it's so um, controversial in so many ways. At first it seemed like this very liberal and progressive organization, and clearly it is in terms Do of... Do no harm. Yes. That was their motto. Yes. Right. Right. And now when I think about the fact that they're tax exempt, it really makes me look at them in a different way. You know, it, it shows the positive and negative qualities. They are absolutely revolutionary in terms of their technological imaginations. I mean, they're they're so imaginative well, and and I do think effective. they they all set they out to do corrupt. no harm, and then you know, things things kick in. They have to start making money. How are we going to make money? Well, right. what about privacy? Yeah. Well, what about making money? And life goes on. And then it goes from there. I, I was in part asking how long have you been on the air because it seems like... Well, I've been on the air for CBS for 40 years. And so do you wear a different outfit each time you're on the air? I don't. You don't? No. Do you have to switch it up in some other way? Or I no? don't have to. <laughs> but, you know, I don't wear the same thing every day. But, yeah, I'm pretty conscious of uh, what I wore last week. But I wear things over and over. Okay, that's good to know. I was always curious, like, how does <laughs> someone I, you know, have a you wardrobe should budget? Someone, <laughs> you should ask someone who's on every day. Right. Because I do think they're a little more conscious of that than I would be. I'm, on not, I'm not even on it every week. But you do your own hair and makeup. I do my own hair, but I don't do my own makeup. You don't do no. your own makeup. I read in a... I do my own makeup except for studio. Okay. If I go out to do an interview in the field, I do my own makeup. Okay. Yeah. I um, had read an article about you. Yeah, I do, do do my own makeup for most of my interviews, for all my interviews. Um, can we just go over, I know that no day is the same for you at 60 Minutes. Can we go over like a week? What would a week look like? No weeks life? are the same. Okay, but all right, let's, I'll tell you what this about week. the morning? Let's do yeah, this week let's or do last this week. week. Uh, so I flew to London on Monday, real early this week. What time? Well, I think I, I got an 8 o'clock flight. For you, that's late since you've been up at 3 a.m. to... Ho host <laughs> shows. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I get up at early. six normally, so that was okay. Although the car came for me at six, so I got up at about five. Okay. But that's okay. I wanted, I like getting out early, so I got out early and got to London. And uh, when, you, when you fly in the morning, you get there at night. Yes. So I went right to bed. I got to my hotel. It was still early in New York, but I took an Ambien and went right to sleep. Woke up fine, woke up refreshed and uh, spent a full day interviewing, and then got back on a plane and came home. Who are you interviewing there? Um, I'm doing another sports story for 60 Minutes Sports, but this is a story about two uh, identical twin tennis players, the Bryan brothers. Oh, wow. And I did a piece on them three years ago, which was amusing because they do did absolutely everything together. Not only is there uh, serve in sync. They have identical serve except one's a righty and one's a lefty. But they were living together. They had one bank account. They oh shared gosh. clothes. They even <laughs> shared a toothbrush from time to time. They, uh, they, they just did absolutely 
every single minute of their lives together. So we are doing an update because they've gotten married. To each other? Not to each other. <laughs> Not to each other. But it does make everyone feel better about their mother-in-laws to know that it could be worse. It could be, <laughs> it could be even worse. It could be a but they've gotten married, so uh, one even moved to a different state. So we went oh, wow. back to see how they're coping. They're 35, so they, they spent every second and did everything together, even lived together till they were 32. How are they coping? So that's what my story was kind of fun. How are they coping? They seem to be okay, just okay. Great, actually. They're very funny. It's so interesting, though, because it, essentially their adolescence was delayed. And I find sometimes that kids who are professionals are so mature in their discipline as a kid. A and huge then part of their childhood uh, was, was completely snuffed out. One of the things, because their father had pushed them in, in this career, he wanted them to be professional tennis players. And, and because of his uh, philosophies of child raising, he even wrote a book about it, uh, they, for instance, weren't allowed to play video games when all the other kids were. And then they finally got a Nintendo, but they were only allowed to watch one hour a week. Wow. So now, for years, all they did was play video games as adults. Just to overcompensate for that time. I guess. Yeah. I, it's it's a, it's also fascinating that I, it seems you have to have a parent, like not just have the internal drive, but have a parent who pushes you. You know, though, I, at some point it becomes your own motivation or you can't do it, and they are highly motivated. Would you say that's the case for you? I know you've spoken about how your late mother um, always encouraged you to have a career and she not did. just a job. Uh, she She really wanted me not to have a job because then I could give that up. She wanted me to get my teeth into something that would last. She didn't pick journalism. She was very supportive, very critical. She was very critical? Very critical, highly critical. Um, about what sorts of things? Oh my, uh, how I looked, how my voice sounded. Uh, Maybe we're related. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot, of, a lot of us have that mother, a lot of us. Um, but, but in the end, really, really crucial to my career because she told me I could have a this career, mm -hmm. this career, which is very demanding, yes. and have a child and not worry about it. She gave me permission. I think a lot of women are made to feel guilty by their mothers. What do you mean you left your child at home? Uh, I never got that. I, I always got reinforcement that I, I could raise a he healthy child and work full time. Were there tangible things either one of your parents did to show you how to have a strong work ethic, you know, how to study hard or? No, I, I really think drive is innate. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can give another person drive. Yeah. I think I was born with this. Hungry. Um, just a sense of responsibility and maybe yes. ambition. I don't know. I just, I never had to search around for that. Yes. Yes. And it was more finding out what, where to channel it. Exactly. And once I found that I loved this, which I do, journalism. Yes then it became easy, really easy, to push myself there. And so th you, you worked for Lindsay? I start my first job, well, my first job was at a foundation. I worked oh. at the Population Council. And I really- Were you, uh, you pro-population or against it? <laughs> uh, we were worrying not about the United States as much as India and China and places like that. 
Um, but I wasn't very happy there, and that was a place where I really didn't want to get up in the morning. Yes. Um, and thought, why, why do people love to go to work? And that was when I answered an ad in the New York Times. That's and got my job at Mayor Lindsay's office, writing, working for the speechwriter. They put an ad in the New York Times, and I answered the ad. There was a little contest. We had to write a little essay. Do you remember what your essay of was about? Of course I do. It was on uh, Operation Bootstrap in Puerto Rico, because the mayor was going to go speak to a group of Puerto Ricans, and they wanted this background paper, and they got it free. At least my, that was my subject. I think everybody else who applied got a different subject. So they got all these free research papers submitted, and I got the job. And I love that job, too. I love that job. Now, those are really demanding jobs for young people. We had a little boiler room. Um, and in the boiler room was Robert Krolwich, who you hear on yes. NPR. He yes. was in there. Um, Don Graham, the publisher of wow. the Washington Post, was in there. Um, we had two other people and me. And so it was, a, it was a young group of researchers. Who all became stars? Uh, well, be yeah. <laughs> we're public, became All of public you are, people. Are, are highly respected in your field. Yeah, and we had, uh, we, we took it very seriously. Our See how boss, people criticize government, and there's a proof that government can do positive things. They all hired all these people. Well, you know, kids. I think the Lindsay administration was very idealistic, and we worked for the speechwriter in the very beginning of the Lindsay administration. And our boss, his name was Jim Carberry, he was Lindsay's first speechwriter. Yes. He was determined to, to turn us into professionals. So we had to submit our papers very neatly, and they, there was a prescribed way to do it, and they had to be on time. He was determined to teach the young people uh, how That's to go amazing. to work. That's amazing to have a mentor yep. who teaches you tangible skills and doesn't just sort of give you aphorisms of, you know, good luck out there, or the opposite criticism, but not, you know, not uh, accessible, clear direction. That's incredible. And if we did a good report, we could go to the speech. And if we didn't do a good report, we couldn't. So there was reward, there were carrots and sticks and things like that. That's incredible that yeah. you had such a good teacher. Do you, do you mentor people? I hope so. I, you'd have to go ask them. So. <laughs> okay. Well, because I see and know a lot of um, young folks who work very hard at 60 Minutes. Yes, yes, we have a lot of young people. And is that something that's part of, I don't know, do, is it something you do consciously mentoring or is it something one does I th on their own? I don't think I sit down and, and say, here's what you do. But we work in teams. And there are young people on my team. And that's how they learn by doing. They do. They go out and do. And that's the best way to learn, at least journalism. I'm sure it's the best way to learn almost any profession. It's certainly true uh, for me. I, I mean, you know, being able, if you can be paid to learn, it's the greatest exactly. thing in the world. Exactly. Especially if you love the subject. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to ask you, are there ever times where you didn't get the answer you wanted? Um, were you able to go back and interview the person again? Ah, very rare at 60 Minutes. I'm actually, I, I'm, I have a funny feeling I did go back, but I can't remember that I ever did. Uh, there have been times when others have. The other thing I wanted to ask, the White but House... But it's possible yeah. for us to do that. It is possible to go Absolutely. back. Absolutely. And, and ask again. And I think that's a great way to look at well, a story, and that, that, that if you don't get what you need, to stop and figure out how to then go and get it. It's more that... I have done this. It's more that the situation has changed. Let's say you interview the Secretary of State, 
Mm -hmm. And you finish the interview Thursday because it takes several days to put our stories together. But on Saturday, something happened. Yes. And you call up and you say, it changes everything. Back we go. Do a shorter interview, but cover whatever changed. Well, and then that person can sometimes be in a bad position. Let's say they were saying that there were bombs in a country and they're not bombs. Right. And then all of a sudden you so go, okay, So they well, want to do it as well. They're eager to, to do it again. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to know if there are ethical standards taught in journalism because I feel like now you, know, you can basically become your own journalist. If, if I were to write a really good blog, I could become a journalist. But I haven't been taught a code of ethics. And I just remember when I interned at Voice of America in college, you know, they had a code of ethics. Mm. Oh, CBS has an enormous book of standards. Huge. Uh, we can't, for example, when I bring my interviews back, take an answer mm -hmm. and put it to a different question. We can't. Uh, uh, change the essence of what someone says, even though the words may change the essence. Wow. Let's say they talk for five minutes, and I take a 40-minute, second, 40-second answer. If it doesn't reflect the essence of what the person was saying, we can't use it. There's one person at 60 Minutes who reads all the interviews. Oh, gosh. That's her job. And there's been a person in that role as long as I've been here. And she sits in the screenings with our bosses when they look at our pieces. And if the sense of what the person really meant to say is not reflected, she speaks up. Or if there is what they call an illegal edit, yes, where the different question or part of the answer was at one point in the interview and the second part of what you've taken is from another, she calls you on it. Uh, then how are you going to keep up time-wise? Because that, that takes a lot of time to actually be, you know, ethical and actually uh, create sound, thoughtful journalism. How are you going to possibly keep up when people well, are just you do, posting because things Because right that's away? your job, and you have to stay within the CBS News guidelines. Somebody just uh, demanded of me, after a big, long interview, um, that I show him the story before it aired. And we're not, that's part of our ethics. We're not allowed to do that. And he said, well, everybody else lets us do that, which I don't even think is true. But yeah. uh, there was a huge uh, argument. Well, there, there are just lines we cannot cross. Yes. Giving someone the right to uh, approve or, or disapprove of one of our stories, that we, we, we are not allowed to do that. So we have all kinds of rules and standards and codes and do's and don'ts and so forth. It's funny because it, it, it you know, I, I think on there would be a stereotype of it being as not as innovative and progressive and yet it's so much more uh, sound. <laughs> it's interesting to hear that, how grounded you guys are, whereas, you know, I, I was just thinking of the sort of younger, hipper places may have a reputation for being more innovative, but actually there's so much cronyism and things like that that go al along uh. in places that don't have a journalistic standard in the same way. Well, you, you know, do. if somebody makes demands on us mm -hmm. at 60 Minutes, mm -hmm. I'll give you the interview, but you can't ask me this and you can't ask me that. Um, we say no, we can't do that, and then we'll lose the interview. And that's it. And you're willing to and give it up. Well, we have to give it up, <laughs> and, and we actually can afford to give it up. Are there any interviews that you would like to get that you can't, the person keeps saying no, but you keep trying? Oh, God, I have a whole list. <laughs> I have a huge list. I, I do. And, and it, it isn't that they say no. They say, not now. So I keep calling. And waiting. Not now. 
and I keep calling. And we go back and back and back and back. And there are people that, that I've been calling for 10 years. Is there anyone where you're like, I think I might be considered a stalker? <laughs> but then they finally <laughs> relented and they were actually, you know. <laughs> I've had several who finally <laughs> relented and several more who haven't. <laughs> um, you interviewed Ariel Sharon? I did. Wow. I did. What was that like? Can you impersonate his voice? I cannot impersonate <laughs> his voice, but I'm not good at that. Um, well, you say his name, and the first thing that pops into my mind from being with him is that he took us to his ranch, and he was, I mean, it, it worried me how overweight he was. And he yeah. walked me around the ranch, and I kept thinking, how can he even support himself? He was so overweight. I'm not surprised that he had a stroke. He, he just was carrying around, uh, I don't know. So a couple other, a couple extra people. I actually really, really liked the man personally, and I wasn't sure I was going to, but he was a person of great charm, great intelligence, uh, and the more he talked, the more a sense of, of him being a sympathetic person came through. And that was not his image in this country at no. all. How, how, yeah, how do you uh, combat that? Well, I mean, it's I, like a Tony Soprano, but in real life. Well, he wasn't thuggish in his presentation. He, he was, he was a, a, a softer. I, I meant that Tony Soprano is someone you can empathize with. Uh, oh, OK. You know, and that there well, are full Well, but Tony, Tony Soprano had a roguish quality. Yeah. Uh, and you're saying no, Ariel Sharon did no, not have that. No, he had more of a grandfather oh, quality. And a, and a, um, Assuming you're not Palestinian, he had a grandfather quality. <laughs> no, and even to the United States, he didn't have that quality. That's what I'm saying. Being in wow. his company wow. changed my sense of him dramatically. And I'm not even sure my interview reflected that because I was asking him some tough questions. Um, but don't forget, he did change Israeli policy. Yes. And uh, I think he just must, must have mellowed a great deal in his life so that by the time I did my interview, which was not long before he, he did go into his coma, he, uh, he, he had softened and showed it and was That's old enough, mature enough, strong enough to, to reveal that side of him. I was in his house, and it was some holiday over there, so his family was in the kitchen. This is the president of the country, or the prime minister of the country. His pre his his uh, family is having the holiday meal in the kitchen while he's giving me the interview in the living room. And then he would get up and go in the kitchen and then ask all of us if we wanted to try the food. That's so sweet. Kind of exotic food. Yeah. It was very sweet. Th that's fascinating, that to interview someone who you think you're going to have one opinion and, uh, and it comes totally out different. different. That's yes. Have you had it on the flip side where you interviewed someone who's considered a saint and they actually were such a schmuck in real life? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's surprising how few people I've interviewed who I strongly dislike, but there have been several. And what do you do in that situation, like with Jack Abramoff, for example? I like know? Jack Abramoff. You do for like example. him, yeah. I did, I did. He's, you know, these are that. That's more in the roguish category. Yes. Of of a guy with a twinkle, and uh, and also when I interviewed him, he'd already done his time. Yeah. And. Uh, but I still saw the rogue in him. It was still there. Uh, but I did like him, too. You, you find when you're, it's just the two of you sitting knee to knee. Yes. A lot of junk 
from what, you, what you've read and what they've done goes away because it's just this little funnel or a tunnel almost and the two of you knee to knee and you see some character um, and often the, the side they're desperate to show you which is going to be their best side but every now and then I'm sitting knee to knee with someone and I just take a strong dislike to them there really is something called chemistry between people and I'm sure they feel the same about me at that very moment it's happening you're, you're relating and it's not working did that happen with Sarkozy? it did he it seemed did. so just watching the tapes he was I mean and he was rude to everyone it, was, it didn't seem yes, personal you know, he was rude to everybody. But he was really, it was embarrassing. Yeah. And I was, you know, I'm lucky, I guess, that I, I'm either lucky or not lucky that I understand French, because just listening to what he was saying, while you were very nicely trying to get him to be present and remind him very gently and diplomatically, you are on camera. <laughs> Do you remind him? <laughs> well, that's a case where no one was pushing against him. And he really, I think he forgot how to handle that kind of situation. I strongly encourage people who want to go into journalism to watch that interview with you and also watch this 1984 tape of you on Face the Nation uh, with both um, Jerry Falwell and, and Boy George because you have a panel and then you have a, an individual interview in the same episode. And I almost got fired for that show because even though I'd been encouraged to change Face the Nation a little bit, to be not so predictable, not to always have the usual cast of Washington. Yes. Uh, senators and secretaries of cabinets. Uh, when I finally did do that by interviewing Boy George, who was basically dressed as a woman in the interview, um, the bosses had all kinds of second thoughts, and Walter Cronkite went on a crusade against the whole thing. It's so interesting considering that he was the problem when you know I wrote down one of Falwell's quotes, and, and I want to say that Falwell was really thoughtful about women. I was shocked at how um, hopeful he was that his daughter would work and um, was okay with his wife working. It sounded like, at least you know, from what he was saying, the, the lip service. But what he talked about a man, uh, he said, when a man wants to be like a woman, it displays an unhappiness unha with who he is and how God made him. Well, he believes that. He believes that the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. He was just reflecting his views, his deep beliefs. But it's amazing now, of course, it's easy in hindsight to look back and think, why wasn't Cronkite upset about spewing homophobia <laughs> and more <laughs> upset about, you know, boy George looking silly, which he did. He doesn't look like a male or a female in the end. He just looks And no one was fairer in this world than Walter Cronkite. So you just have put your finger on what happens when, when times change and societies change and thinking changes. And you and I have just lived through this incredible revolution with women, just talking about how oh, much yeah. times have changed. It's getting so much better, and I know that that you, you know. You were just telling me that you feel that women comics. Oh, are the more whole accepted. thing is different. When I started, and this is 2007, I left my PhD. I was doing stand-up, and I was told I wasn't effable enough at the comic strip, and that if I wanted to perform there, that I would need to dress sexier. Now, no one ever asks and should never ask Jerry Seinfeld or Bill Cosby those kinds of things. <laughs> of course not. And now, you know, four years later, I, I mean, I just feel so lucky to go in and be a woman. I'm so grateful I'm not another white people male. People laugh at women. I, people didn't used to laugh at women. Women weren't funny. We weren't allowed, we, I think we weren't allowed, and I really even mean just like three years ago, that you couldn't be smart and um, do dumb things. 
Like somehow <laughs> that was considered impossible. Or be sexy, never mind be sexy. I think that that's the difference. And it's so clear to me that it's because of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and, and you know, 15 And a whole other lot of other things that have gone on in, in society. Yes. A whole lot of other things. I was telling you this before that uh, when I started out and I was hired because of affirmative action, there were so few of us. I kept thinking, oh, now that we have affirmative action, this thing is going to snowball so fast. Society's attitudes toward women, women coming into positions of power, all that's going to bing right along. Yeah. And I think only now, 40 years later, are we just starting that tipping point. I feel it. You feel it. Yes. There's something happening. You were remarkable in, a, in an interview you did with this revolutionary woman who's gay. Um, she's Afghani, I believe. Um, I'm so embarrassed that I'm forgetting her name, but you were so smart in the way that you asked about how women transmit cultural values for better or for worse just as much as men, that women can also purport sexism. Why am I forgetting? She's so interesting. You interviewed her at NYU Wagner School, where I think. Oh, Ershad Manji. Oh, it oh was yeah, she's fantastic. she's brilliant. Ershad Manji. And you did such an excellent job of bringing up, you know, sexism doesn't just come from men. That well, that of course we know that, but I do think the that attitudes toward women, uh, not to even talk about homosexuality, but just toward women, have changed so slowly at first. It really is like something was being pushed up a hill so slowly, and now it's reached the top, and it's just going to careen. Yeah, I look at Hillary Clinton. Off. How you know how long it's taken for America to accept whether you like her or not? I don't care, but to accept that she's really good. <laughs> right, 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 right. She had a lot to do with this changing attitude. I think it's uh, unbelievable. Um, what are you working on next? What are the last uh, two stories okay. you have for this I season? I have two more stories, and one which I hope will run very soon is on this group of policemen in Massachusetts who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan using uh, General Petraeus's counterinsurgency handbook techniques, and they have brought these home, these techniques, to fight the gangs in an inner city. Um, we're calling it counterinsurgency cops. I'm so excited. My, one of my best friends covers the cop beat for Boston for the Boston Globe. So I'm going to tell her to look out for, okay. your, for your story because Excellent. that is fascinating. Um, this was such a treat to have you on, Leslie Stahl. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. What it's are you going to do fun. with your award? Well, first I, I might just tell everybody uh, whom I have uh, put on my Twitter following list. Oh, yes. What, okay, because so you're joining Twitter officially today. Tell yes, everyone I've what you're... just joined. Your my, my name, what is it called, a handle? Your handle. My handle <laughs> yes. is Leslie R. Stahl, because someone has Leslie Stahl, so I had to put my middle initial in there. We're hoping that person's very funny. Leslie <laughs> R-S-T-A-H-L. <laughs> right. And I'm going to brag about my award. Okay, terrific. Um, I cannot thank you enough. This was such a treat. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it so much. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Tune in next time. You can do so by subscribing at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. I want to thank, beyond thank, Brian Fountain, Joel Arnold, Ian Mazoff, Danielle Maviel, and especially all of you listening at home. This has been such a joy to continue to do these interviews with some just ridiculously incredible people. Anyways, thank you very, very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>